Good morning, everyone. You get your exercise this morning, shoveling out, all good. You don't know if it's good. Don't know if you shoveled out. You guys know anything this morning? Uh, why don't you go ahead and open your Bibles with me to the New Testament to 1 Peter chapter 1. 1 Peter 1, and as many of you know, and just in case you don't, we recently started a new series called Aliens. It's a study of this letter the Apostle Peter wrote to Christians in the early church who he addresses as aliens in the world, stressing the idea that as followers of Jesus, they were, they were ultimately citizens of heaven who aren't always going to fit in here on earth. And because of their reverence for God, because of their obedience to what God says is right and good and healthy and best, they're going to be sometimes misunderstood and seen as strange. And Peter says, understand that, accept it, deal with it. And whenever you're ridiculed for your faith, remember you've been chosen by the grace of the Father, set apart by the Spirit, rescued and commissioned for service by the Son whose name is Jesus. Uh, In short, he says to Christians in the church, although you're aliens and although you're strange, at the same time you're very special. Grace and peace are yours. And then he writes this in chapter 1, verse 3. Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. In his great mercy, he's given us new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus from the dead and into an inheritance that can never perish, spoil, or fade. This inheritance is kept in heaven for you, who through faith are shielded by God's power until the coming of the salvation that is ready to be revealed in the last time. In all this, you greatly rejoice, though now for a little while you may have had to suffer grief and all kinds of trials. These have come so that the proven genuineness of your faith of greater worth than gold, which perishes even though refined by fire, may result in praise, glory, and honor when Jesus Christ is revealed. Though you have not seen him, you love him. And even though you don't see him now, you believe in him and are filled with an inexpressible and glorious joy, for you are receiving the end result of your faith, the salvation of your souls. Concerning this salvation, the prophets who spoke of the grace that was to come to you searched intently and with the greatest care, trying to find out the time and circumstances to which the Spirit of Christ in them was pointing when he predicted the sufferings of the Messiah and the glories that would follow. It was revealed to them that they were not serving themselves but you. When they spoke of the things that have now been told you by those who have preached the gospel to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven, even angels long to look into these things." Before we go on, let's pray. Father, I want to thank you for uh, bringing uh, my friends here together today, uh, even through the snow, but we're grateful for the sunshine that uh, we see now and, and for uh, your care over us uh, every single day. And I pray that um, now that we are here, that you would give us, um, you would give us the, the strength to push aside those things that distract us that we might listen, that we might focus on what you have to teach us today. By the work of your Spirit, through your Word, we ask uh, these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, You know, as we uh, talked about last Sunday, when Peter wrote this letter to the church, uh, the church was experiencing severe persecution under the Roman Emperor Nero. Uh, public opinion had had um, turned against the emperor. Many people uh, held him responsible for setting the great fire of Rome, setting the city on fire. Many people thought he did it. And so to take pressure off of himself, Nero blamed Christians for the fire. And uh, he took advantage of some cultural misconception, uh, misconceptions of these, these so-called Jesus followers and declared them to be 
guilty of the fire. He declared them to be a threat to the empire, and he ordered a widespread persecution of all of them. And so uh, they were they were rounded up. Uh, their money, their possessions were taken. Uh, most of them were beaten and abused publicly. Some of them were fed to wild dogs. Uh, others were hung on crosses uh, until they were dead. Uh, and some were tied to posts, covered with pitch, and set on fire, and used as torches, human torches, to light Nero's gardens. And so, you know, it was, a, it was an intense time of, a time of pain and suffering, for those in the church. And Peter was aware of it. I mean, he was aware of all the injustice and the brutality and, and the pain and death that believers were experiencing, which is why suffering is a major theme in his letter. You find the topic addressed in all five chapters. Yet interestingly enough, before he says anything about it, in verse 6, Peter refers to his readers as those who greatly rejoice. And the Greek, the Greek term rejoice here literally means to celebrate with exhilarating gratitude. It was essentially a first century party word. And uh, Peter says, you guys greatly rejoice, though, and I'm going to stop there for a second, because I don't know about you, when I hear a word like though in a sentence, uh, I, I cringe a little because it's usually, it usually means something bad is following it. Do you know what I mean? It's like when you go to the doctor for tests and the doctor comes back and says, you know, all your tests are good, though there is one thing. Or you take your car to the mechanic and the mechanic says, hey, your tires are good, your brakes are good, though you need a new transmission. Or, you know, you talk to a teacher after an exam and the teacher says, you did okay on the multiple choices, though your essays were very bad. So, uh, in a similar way, Peter's writing Christians, he says, you greatly rejoice, though now for a little while you may have had to suffer grief. And the, the phrase suffer grief reflects one Greek term, lupeo, it means pain and suffering, both physical and emotional. Now, given the historical context, uh, I'm guessing the pain of persecution was at the top of Peter's list, but notice he says you may have had to suffer grief what? In all kinds of trials. And so uh, clearly Peter had more in mind here, which makes sense to me because, I mean, as we all know, suffering is the result of a, of a lot of different things in life, right? I mean, think about it. Sometimes, sometimes people cause us pain and suffering. And the world is filled with sinfully broken, selfish men, women like me, like you, all of us just, you know, trying to trying to make our way in the world, trying to get our way in the world, and somewhere along the line we mistreat each other, we disappoint each other, we offend, and we, we, we can wound one another. It's the, way, it's the way it goes. It's a way of life. In a broken world, pain and suffering can come by way of sickness, accidents, natural disasters, financial failures. Um, many of us get married, which is a good thing, but it's not easy for two flawed human beings to cohabitate, right? It gets complicated. And then if we have children, you find out very quickly that they're just like us. They're rebellious in nature. I mean, we don't have to teach kids to be bad. We have to instruct them on, on what's good. And while they are indeed a, um, a wonderful gift from God, parenting them can be tough, right? Parenting is hard. And... Uh, Sometimes your kids can break your heart. And then there's the whole aging process. Old Testament wisdom says, remember uh, your creator in the days of your youth before the days of trouble come. 
And I used to wonder what that meant until I turned 40. Then I figured it out, and I've been figuring it out for a long time since. So uh, sometimes it's just that, the natural process of, of aging. And then finally, you know, sometimes through our own arrogance and our, our own ignorance and our own stupidity, we bring pain and suffering on ourselves. And we reap the consequences of poor choices. So in summary, Peter is saying, he's saying to Christians, you, you greatly rejoice, though everyday, in, everyday life in a broken world can be painful. But here's the thing. Rejoicing is usually reserved for the good times, right? I mean, when pain and suffering enter our experience, uh, we're more likely to cry or scream or complain or feel sorry for ourselves or blame somebody else for our problems. Few of us feel like throwing a party when facing serious trials. So what exactly is Peter suggesting here? Is he, is he suggesting we just fake it? Is he, is he suggesting we walk around with plastic smiles, reciting insipid cliches that, that we have adopted in church culture as a way of hiding and denying the pain that we really feel? Or is he actually saying it's possible to rejoice even in the midst of suffering. Uh, apparently, it's the latter, because the, that's what these Christians were doing. In fact, the two Greek ter- uh, verbs that are used here for greatly rejoice and suffer grief both represent a present, ongoing reality in their lives. I mean, Peter doesn't say, hey, you've been rejoicing, now you have to suffer. And neither, he, he doesn't say, you've been suffering, now you get to, to rejoice for a while. And neither does he say, you've been suffering, but your joy is coming. Just hold on. Mm -mm. Peter says, you are greatly rejoicing right now while at the same time suffering grief. The average person is going to hear that and say, that's impossible, man. That can't happen. Nobody can rejoice when you're losing the things in life that bring you joy. And like these people, they were losing social status, their careers, possessions, money, relationships, family, health. Most people agree, you know, joy and suffering cannot exist simultaneously. Why? Because for most people, and for some of us even in this room, joy is all about circumstance. But here, Peter is is telling us and affirming that joy is more than circumstance. And it's not that when we suffer, uh, we, we don't acknowledge our pain, or we don't cry, or we don't struggle to make sense of it all. But it does mean he's saying that we can experience a genuine sense of joy that transcends our circumstances. See, for Peter and and his fellow Christians who were suffering grief and trials of all kinds, joy flowed not out of their circumstances, but out of understood spiritual realities. And Peter mentions a number of them here. For example, uh, the reality of new birth and living hope. Verse 3, Peter says, Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. In his great mercy, he has given us new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. In other words, Peter says, Finding joy in every circumstance is good and bad begins with experiencing new birth. In other words, faith in Jesus, through whom God graciously gives us a second chance. No matter who you are, no matter where you've been, no matter what you've done or how badly you've messed up, God offers all of us a new beginning. And it's this new spiritual beginning that gives us this living hope. And hope is critical uh, to all of us. Uh, Dr. Uh, Viktor Frankl was a Jewish neurologist and psychiatrist who survived three years in a Nazi concentration camp in World War II. 
And during that time in the camp, uh, he couldn't stop being a doctor. He couldn't stop being a scientist. And so he, he, he observed the behavior of all the people around him who lost everything. They lost their status. They lost their, their money, their possessions, their health, their families. And, and they were, each of them were every day facing the threat of death. And, and Frankel noticed that those who survived and kept their sanity were those who had hope. Those without it committed suicide or just gave up and died. And uh, Frankel asserted that, uh, based on his experience there and his observations, that in our most desperate circumstances, as human beings, we need hope in order to go on. We need a hope that is beyond our circumstances. We need a hope that suffering and death cannot destroy. After being liberated from that camp in 1945 by American troops, um, Frankel went on to write a, his classic text entitled Man's Search for Meaning, in which he says, He who has a why to live for can bear almost any how. But woe to him who saw no sense to his life, no aim, no purpose, therefore no point in carrying on, no hope. He was soon lost. Now, I think it's safe to say that, and safe to assume that none of us here will ever find ourselves in a concentration camp. But I tell you one thing, man, if, if we live long enough, if we live long enough, life itself will take from us the very things that, 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 that are lost in such a place as a, as a concentration camp. Our careers, our social status, relationships, family, health, life itself given the opportunity, takes those things from us. And when it happens, we are going to need hope beyond our circumstances. And Peter says, praise God because of his mercy and through new birth, he gives us a living hope. Because in the darkest moment of human history, when the Son of God suffered on a cross, died, was buried, the situation seemed particularly hopeless. And then God the Father raised Jesus to life. And if God raised Jesus from the dead, he can raise you and me. He can raise us out of the difficulties of life and ultimately to, ultimately to life eternal. And God's promise to do so uh, is another reality that inspires joy. In verse 4, Peter writes that through our new birth, not only do we have this living hope, but we have what? An inheritance, he says, that can never perish, spoil or fade, kept in heaven for you. Here's my, here's my Reiki summary of that. Peter's saying that new birth makes us sons and daughters, adopted and brought into the, the family of God. And as such, uh, God our Father grants us uh, a share of his wealth, a portion of his estate. And this divine trust, if you will, isn't held at a local bank or with Schwab investments. It's on deposit in heaven, where it cannot be ruined by inflation, decimated by mismanagement, embezzled, or even destroyed by terrorists. I mean, it's so safe, it can never, as in Peter's words, perish, spoil, or fade. It is divinely guaranteed. In fact, the Greek term that he uses here for kept is a security term emphasizing that our inheritance cannot be taken away by anything or anyone, and there's nothing that we can do to lose it. It is eternally secure. Now, someone might say, well, okay, but what good is a heavenly inheritance if it doesn't help me now? But see, I believe it does help now, if you really understand it. And I think it should make a difference. And it will make a difference because as Christians, we know no matter how hard life gets, no matter how difficult our struggle may be, someday we'll have it made. Someday the pain will be, be gone. The tears will be wiped away. 
And so finding joy in the midst of suffering, I don't know, makes more sense to me knowing we have an inheritance from God waiting for us. Then a third thing that adds to joy, Peter says, is the reality that although God has secured our future, um, he also cares for us right now. He provides divine protection. Now, some people might balk at that, push back a little on that and say, hey, what are you talking about? Look at life, man. Look at life. Look at everything that goes wrong. Fair enough. But what if we flipped that? What if we flipped the focus and looked at everything that goes right? I mean, consider this question. What didn't go wrong for you this week? What could have gone wrong but didn't? I mean, maybe... Uh, Maybe you missed that really bad car accident on Route 53 in St. Charles by just a a few seconds. That was my experience. Maybe your company could have laid you off, but didn't. Maybe, Maybe your professor decided not to give that pop quiz, the one you were in no way ready for, right? Or how about the fire that erupted down the block that didn't reach your house or apartment? What about the emotionally troubled gunman who never came to your kid's school or to the mall where you were shopping. Or maybe you got the flu this week, but you didn't get diagnosed with West Nile virus. You see what I'm saying? Do you see what I'm getting at? If we stop and consider for a moment what could have gone wrong but didn't, then maybe, you know, just maybe we'll start recognizing that life isn't as bad as it could be. And that God protects us from an awful lot of things. Things we know of and things we don't. Peter says we rejoice because not only we're given this new birth into a living hope and an inheritance, but verse 5 he says, because through faith we're shielded by God's power until the coming of the salvation that is ready to be revealed in the last time. In other words, he's saying God has committed to take care of us, to take care of you, to watch out for, to protect you, to shield you from the dangers you don't even know are there. And when life in this world does get hard, he promises to bring you through. And so instead of, you know, instead of complaining about what went wrong, maybe we ought to try and celebrate and praise God for what went right and find comfort in the reality that trials in this world are temporary. Verse 6, Peter says, he says, In this you greatly rejoice, though, he says, though now for a little while, You've had to suffer in all kinds of trials. And Peter is making the point that, look, life on earth and the suffering that takes place uh, is really just a blip on the radar screen of eternity. It really is. Let me ask you this. Do Christians suffer? The answer is obvious, right? We do. And do non-Christians suffer? Sure, absolutely. We all do. We're human. We're part of this human Experience. So what's the difference? What's the difference between Christian suffering and non-Christian suffering? Well, as I see it, the difference is this, that those without Christ have no true long-term perspective and no guaranteed uh, hope of relief except, uh, except death itself. Um, Richard Dawkins is a very well-known atheist who has re- recently sponsored an ad campaign in London that's become known as the Atheist Bus Campaign. I don't know if you're familiar with it, but basically here's a picture of him promoting a slogan that was put on a number of double-decker buses in London and drove around the city. The slogan, if you can probably read it, says, there's probably no God, now stop worrying and enjoy your life. 
And, uh, you know, Dawkins is very proud of the, the, the campaign. And to the casual reader, it's really no big deal. That's what he thinks, you know, yeah, yeah. But for anyone who's willing to engage their brain and think about it, there's an innate problem with the suggestion. I mean, I'm sure it was... I'm sure it was upsetting to the religious community, as small as it is in London. But I'm thinking it should have been, uh, it should have been extremely upsetting to the irreligious community. Why? Because in a way, it's, a, it's an in-your-face reminder that while atheism may try to remove God from life's equation, it does not and it cannot remove the reality of pain and suffering. And ultimately offers no answers to the universal question of why suffering, how do we understand it, how do we deal with it. Neither does it offer any notion of redemption or justice. Dawkins himself admits that. In his book, River Out of Eden, he writes, In a universe of blind physical forces and genetic replication, some people are going to get hurt, other people are going to get lucky. And you won't find any rhyme or reason in it, nor any justice. The universe has exactly those properties we should expect if there's at the bottom no design, no purpose, no evil, no good. Nothing but blind, pitiless indifference. Blind, pitiless indifference. Is that something to celebrate? It's a reality, according to Dawkins. So you can take a toke and numb your brain. You can take a drink and drown your sorrows. You can take a pill and forget about it all. You can live your life in a crazy, wild way in denial of it. But in the end, blind, pitiless indifference is nothing to find joy in. Not lasting joy. I mean, here's what the bus slogan is really saying. It's saying, there's no help coming, people. There is no hope. I mean, understand, atheism is the very denial of hope. It is the very denial of help, of redemption and justice. I mean, at least religion offers the potential of such things, if you're good enough to earn them. And that's a pretty big if. But that's what makes Christianity different, you see? That in Jesus, God graciously gives us such things. There's no earning hope. There's no earning help. There's no earning redemption. There's no earning justice. Only receiving. And in, the, in that receiving, the pain we experience here on earth begins to pale in comparison to the healing we'll experience forever. And that's where the joy comes in. I mean, understand, trials are temporary, Peter says. And as, as, much as, we, we like, as much as we dislike them, he also says they're necessary. He says trials authenticate and refine faith. You know, in the Old Testament, there's a guy named Job. Some of you may be familiar with his story, but Job experienced an inordinate amount of tragedy and suffering in his life. And at one point, he asks God, he says, you know, God, why has this all happened to me? And God doesn't, doesn't give him a direct answer. Instead, God asks Job some questions. Uh, questions like, where were you? Where were you when I laid the foundations of the earth? Can you raise your voice and make it rain? Have you placed the stars in the heavens? Do eagles soar at your command? Do you really know anything about true justice? God says, Job, why do you doubt me? And eventually Job says, you're right. I am but a man, unworthy to challenge you. 
For you can do all things. You are the creator. You are God. No plan of yours can be thwarted. It is all too wonderful for me to understand. It's all too great for me to wrap my brain around and comprehend. He said, I'm just going to put my hand over my mouth. My Reiki translation. Job says, I'm just going to humbly be quiet and trust you. In spite of the suffering, in spite of his struggle to understand it all, Job, Job didn't run from God. He had faith. You say, what does this have to do with First Peter? Well, I don't know. It seems Peter helps answer the question that Job was asking, doesn't it? I mean, why trials? Verse 7, he says, These have come so that your faith of greater worth than gold, which perishes even though refined by fire, your faith may be proved genuine and may result in praise, glory, and honor when Jesus Christ is revealed. Your faith may be proved genuine and may result in praise, glory, and honor. By the way, the praise, glory, and honor, often we read that and think it's when it, that we praise and give glory and honor to Jesus when he's revealed. Mm-mm. It's God giving us the praise, glory, and honor because of our faith. Our faith has been proved genuine. Look, at my age... And after 25 years of ministry, I can tell you that the majority of people I know who've who've gone through some really hard times will readily admit uh, that most of what they really needed for success in life, the most important lessons about life came through their most difficult and painful experiences. Like it or not, suffering has a way of bringing growth and maturity and wisdom and perspective and strength into our lives. And it's not that these people are grateful for tragedies, but for them looking back, most can see good reasons for at least some of the tragedy and some of the pain that has occurred in their life. You know, look, it's, it's easy to trust God when life is good. But it's a whole different story, you know, when life gets hard and when trials of many kinds come. And when they do, are you going to run from God or are you going to run to him? Suffering has a way of forcing a decision. And it tends to prove who we are and what we really believe. Which brings us to another reality that inspires joy, and that is Jesus himself. Um, I mean, it would be cool if, if Jesus was here and we could see him, we could touch him, and it would be great if everything we're going to experience in heaven we could experience right now. But that wouldn't require any faith, would it? So here's kind of how it works. Just as a pregnant woman loves her unborn baby, or one spouse loves the other who's a soldier deployed away from home, so we believe in and we love Jesus and experience his love, and we're filled with this great sense of anticipation of seeing him someday face to face. And when we do, it's going to be better than, than when a baby is born or when a soldier comes back home from war. Peter says, because we have Jesus. It's, not, it's a now thing, it's not just a then thing. And that's reason for rejoicing, even when other parts of our lives are causing us grief. He says, though you haven't seen him, you love him. Even though you don't see him right now, you believe in him and are filled with an inexpressible. And that's this idea of this deep sense of joy. It's not like we're running around saying, thank you, God, I broke my ankle. That's silly. But it's this inexpressible, deep sense and glorious joy. Because we know we're receiving the goal of our faith, the salvation of our souls. 
And in fact, it's this final reality, this reality of rescue, eternal rescue, that brings our joy to a crescendo. In verse 10, Peter writes, Concerning this salvation, the prophets who spoke of the grace that that was to come to you searched intently and with greatest care, trying to find out the time and circumstances to which the Spirit of Christ in them was pointing when he predicted the sufferings of the Messiah and the glories that would follow. It was revealed to them that they were not serving themselves, but serving you. When they spoke of the things that have now been told you by those who've preached the gospel to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven, even angels long to look into these things. What is Peter saying? Peter's saying that this salvation you have in in Jesus is priceless. It's absolutely priceless. It's something the Old Testament prophets were searching for like a treasure. You know, they, 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 they knew the Messiah was coming. They knew what he was going to do. They just didn't know when he'd come and do it. And so they kept looking, they kept waiting, and eventually the Holy Spirit revealed to them that everything he was leading them to say and to write and to predict was meant to serve you and me by pointing us to Jesus and the rescue that he brings. In fact, Peter says this this rescue, this salvation by grace is so supernaturally amazing that, that, that the angels of heaven are fascinated by it and fascinated with those who find it and embrace it and experience it and enjoy it. And I guess that's what Jesus was getting at when he said, there is rejoicing in the presence of the angels of God over one sinner who repents. Listen, we all have to admit that the problem of pain and suffering uh, is a problem for everybody, right? No matter, no matter who you are, no matter what your beliefs are, it's a problem for everybody. But as Christians, just so we know, this whole proposition of rejoicing, uh, even in the midst of trials, didn't originate with Peter. It wasn't Peter's idea. Jesus himself said, Blessed are you when people insult you, persecute you, and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Rejoice and be glad, because great is your reward in heaven. In Acts chapter 5, Luke reports that when the apostles were, were, um, were beaten for preaching the good news of, of, the new, of the gospel of grace, that they went away rejoicing because they had been counted worthy of suffering for Christ's name. Paul writes Christians in the early church. He says, rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I say rejoice. He says, rejoice in all circumstances. Uh, the writer of Hebrews says that when evil, evil men re- insult you and persecute you, he, the, the writer says, joyfully accept the confiscation of your property. Why? He goes on and says, because you know you have better lasting possessions. And then James, he writes the early church, and he says to Christians, consider it pure joy whenever you face trials of many kinds. I mean, look, I get it. It, it. it sounds strange at first. It does, even to us in the church. It sounds strange, this, this idea of experiencing joy even when we suffer. And, and, and so the obvious question is, is it really possible? And Jesus and Paul and James and Luke and Peter, they all say it is. They say it is, and here's why. Because you've been given new birth into a living hope. As sons and daughters, you have a future inheritance and divine protection. Your trials are temporary. They serve to prove and refine your faith. And you know, you know that by the grace of God and Jesus, you are eternally rescued. So let me, let me try to put it as simply as I can. As Christians, you can rejoice in all circumstances because, the reality, because of the realities of God's grace. And those realities far exceed anything, anything this world has to offer, pleasant or painful, good or bad. Let's pray. 
Our Father, we would all uh, quickly admit that life, as good as it can be, can also be very hard. And um, our tendency is to focus on the things that go wrong um, when, in fact, so many things go right for us. And forgive us for ignoring your, your, your hand of protection and, and goodness uh, in our lives moment by moment every day. But the reality is, no matter who we are, no matter what we believe, the reality is we all admit life is hard. And uh, pain and suffering is a problem for all of us. The question is, how do we deal with it? How do we understand it? And what is our hope? I pray that this morning, each of us would, uh, would evaluate our relationship with you, our God. And understand that by your grace in Jesus, you have offered us something that we could never get on our own, and that is eternal rescue. And as sons and daughters offered uh, and and welcomed into your family, we we have this inheritance waiting for us. And um, I I, I pray, Lord, that you'd help us understand that in in a new deep way, not in a superficial way, but in a deep way, so that this joy might well up within us, even when we face difficulties. And when we do, I pray that we would find hope, this living hope, in you, our God. And we look to Jesus for that. And we ask these things in his name. Amen. My hope uh, this morning is, um, and as we go through uh, Peter's letter to the church, is that you, if you haven't already you know, caught on to this, that there's, there's only a few options in our world, really, uh, when it comes to who we are, why we're here, where we're going, what life is about. Uh, one option is atheism. It says, there's no God. Come on. This is it. This is it. There's no hope. There's no meaning. There's no purpose. Just blind, pitiless indifference. Uh, have a nice day. You know, I mean, the, the, uh, atheism is the antithesis of joy, hope, and uh, that's an option, though. The other option is religion. It says, no, we believe God, there's a God out there somewhere. And that if we can just be good enough, and we can just prove ourselves good enough, uh, we'll find joy in, in knowing him and experience heaven, nirvana, or whatever. But we just have to be good enough. And it's a big if, if I can be good enough. And there's not really a lot of joy in that, because when do you know if you've been good enough? What's the threshold of goodness? And then there's Christianity that's set apart because it says, no, it's about the grace of God. Jesus came to do for you what you cannot do for yourself, to live the life you could never live, to die the death you deserve to die. That through God's grace, as we accept him and put our faith in him, we are rescued and forgiven, given an inheritance as children, sons and daughters. All these things, all these spiritual realities that that inspire this deep sense of joy. And, uh, And we know that in the midst of suffering, our sufferings are temporary, and in the midst of it, we don't have to look to ourselves to overcome it. We don't have to bury our heads in the sand and say there's no meaning to it, but instead we can look to heaven from where our help comes from. Let's stand and sing about that, shall we? Those words come directly out of Psalm 121, which, um, of which I'll close the service with. Um, if there's anything from this morning, whether from the message or from worship today, that, that has really struck you and you 
and you need someone to talk to, and you need something uh, to pray about, we believe in the power of prayer, and we believe that God can intercede on your behalf. And so um, we're going to have some people up front here. Uh, please make your way down um, and let them minister to you. And now as we close our service this morning from Psalm 121. I lift up my eyes to the mountains. Where does my help come from? My help comes from the Lord, the maker of heaven and earth. He will not let your foot slip. He who watches over you will not slumber. Indeed, he who watches over Israel will neither slumber nor sleep. The Lord watches over you. The Lord is your shade at your right hand. The sun will not harm you by day, nor the moon by night. The Lord will keep you from all harm. He will watch over your life. The Lord will watch over your coming and going, both now and forevermore. Amen. We'll see you guys next week, and you may go in peace.